Good. Brilliant. Seamless transition into talking um, from Thessalonians. Well, about Thessalonians, at least. So this morning's actually going to be a little bit different. We're, we've been doing a series called A Growing Church, looking at the first letter to the Thessalonians that Paul writes. And today's a bit different for two reasons. The first one is I'm not going to preach from one Thessalonians, or even from two Thessalonians. Um, but I am going to talk about the Thessalonians, so I hope that's okay. Um, one of the great things about the New Testament, of course, is that you don't just get letters to churches, but you also find those churches cropping up in letters to other people. And then you have the narrative of Acts going alongside it as well. And so you see little bits popping up here and there, and you oh, cross-reference that. Okay, that's that person there. So I'm going to be doing a little bit of that. Um, and the other reason it's not like other weeks is that I'm just going to be telling um, quite a lot of stories, actually, three stories specifically. Um, why? Because actually what I've got to say could seem quite abstract, and I want to land it in what it might look like in real life for people. So, and also I also like telling stories. So hopefully this will work as a, as a way of communicating what I believe is some really fundamental truths. So these three stories, they're separated by time and by distance, but they're all stories of people facing a common challenge. And the first one I want to tell you about is a, a chap called Ben. Now, Ben hasn't had a formal education um, in fact, he got a job fairly young, and he, uh, he got a job packing boxes in a, in, a, in a warehouse. And gradually over time, he worked his way up in that department, you know, did a few stints in different departments, and after 30 years in the same business, he now runs that warehouse as the warehouse manager. Um, it's, it's actually a really good job for him. He really loves the people. He likes his boss. Um, and actually, he, he even has a place to stay on site. So it's, it's not only his place of work, but it's also his home. You know, he's where he eats, where he sleeps, where he socializes. Okay, Ben, is, he's happy with life. Okay, that's Ben. John is an interesting chap as well. So is this working, by the way? There's a little switch on the side. There we go. It says on on it. Sorry. Um, okay, so John is an interesting chap. Now, John had quite a traumatic childhood, actually. As he grew up, um, bailiffs were a fairly regular appearance at the house. Um, his parents were always very poor. Actually, when he was five years old, um, he was also involved in, in a house fire. So uh, he was woken up in the middle of the night. There were sparks falling from the roof. He had lots of brothers and sisters. His parents were rushing around trying to get them all out safely. And it was only when they got downstairs that they realized that they'd missed John and that he was still on an upper floor, and the stairs had burnt away. And just as they were despairing of ever rescuing him, two passers-by, um, I suppose neighbors, came past. One of them stood on the other one's shoulders and reached him down from the upper floor. They must have been very tall, I guess. And he always talks about himself as a brand snatched from the flames, but he was rescued. Actually, he's moved on from that kind of poor background. He, he came to Christchurch as an undergrad and then became a fellow at Lincoln College. That's John. The last person I want to tell you about is called Ari. Now, Ari is quite a, a wealthy businessman, uh, but he's always felt excluded from society. And the main reason he's felt excluded is that he has a faith in the Lord, but he doesn't follow the same traditions as lots of the other people around him who, follow, who also have faith in the Lord. And so he's always felt like he's being looked down on a bit. He's a second-class believer. And there's a few people like him, who don't follow all the traditions but still believe in the Lord. But actually, he's always felt like he doesn't belong with the people who don't believe, and he doesn't really belong with the people who do believe because he feels looked down on. 
Now, I want to follow through Ari's story a little bit more because he's got this mate called Jason who's in the same boat as him. They're both uh, believers, both not following these, all these traditions around them, and they, they meet up fairly often. And one day, they run into this new religious teacher who's just come to town. And he tells them something quite different. He says, listen, there's a new way, which means that you don't have to just follow all the traditions around you. You can come close to God because of what Jesus has done. And he hears this, and something inside him starts to sing. He gets really excited about it. There's a whole bunch of other people get really excited. This new teacher goes and stays at Jason's house. And, you know, Ari's there every second day. He's like, whatever he can, he gets down there, he listens to what this new teacher has to say. This chap's called Paul. And he teaches some amazing things about this chap called Jesus. And he can feel his heart warming and warming. And one day he decides, yes, I believe this. This is true. I believe it wholeheartedly. And he goes and he prays with Paul. And he gets drawn into this community. And there's, there's people there who do follow all those religious traditions. And there's people there who don't. There's some people there who are in slavery. There's some people there who are masters. There are people who are rich. There's people who are poor. And they all greet each other as though they're equals. And he feels loved and welcomed in a way that he has never felt before. And things are going on really well like this. It's been two, three weeks just meeting together in this sort of community bliss almost of sudden acceptance and faith. And then one day he's heading over to Jason's and he hears some angry shouting. And as he's walking there, he suddenly sees this mob running towards him, dragging some people along with them. And he's, he's absolutely shocked to see one of the people they're dragging along with him is his friend Jason. And he's bloodied and bruised and he sort of tries to find out what's going on, and no one can give him a straight answer, and they, they drag them all to the magistrates. And finally, after finally working out that they're actually being pulled to the magistrates for causing trouble, he manages to get them bailed. And they head back, and they realize that they've got to get Paul out of the city. So Paul and his friends, after dark, they, they smuggle them out of the city, and with tearful farewells, they put them on the road to the nearest town, Berea. And he wonders what will become of this community now that, you know, now that Paul's gone. Will it all just dissipate? And he's amazed to realize that actually, no, they go from strength to strength. And increasingly, as his heart is warmed to this community, he finds that he's taking a leading role in it. And actually, he's part of ensuring that community continues to be faithful to Jesus and to each other. Now, perhaps if you've listened to the recent preachers or if you've... I've uh, been reading through the 1 Thessalonians. Perhaps you've realized this is this Ari. He's actually Aristarchus. I just didn't want to throw, uh, throw that in too early. But he's a Thessalonian believer um, who is most likely to have come to faith fairly early on in Paul's visit. And he crops up in various places in Acts and in other letters as well, um, Philemon, Colossians. And this story is his story. Most of what I've told you we can infer from the text um, certainly, he would have been wealthy with the name Aristarchus. Um, he would have been excluded because he was a God-fearing Greek. So he would have believed in the Lord, but never had that status of inclusion along with the Jewish believers who followed the whole law. And that incident with Jason is recorded for us in the book of Acts. And the reason I want to talk to you about Aristarchus is because there are two things about the Thessalonian church that don't come out in the letters to them, but come out really strongly elsewhere. One is that they are very poor, and the other is that they're very generous. Um, we find this out in a couple of different ways, but this is the clearest one in 2 Corinthians 8. 
um, Paul is writing to the, the Corinthian church about giving, and he says, listen, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches in the midst of a very severe trial. We've heard about that already, intense persecution. Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So you may be thinking, I thought you said Aristarchus was wealthy. You're saying the Thessalonians are poor. What's going on there? Well, we know that it was a common practice in all of these early churches that those who had money would provide for the needs of those who were poor. We understand that the majority of the Thessalonian church was very poor and that therefore those who were wealthy would have provided for them. It's likely that that money dissipated fairly quickly. Certainly we know that the Thessalonian church was overall poor and were not aware of there being inequality in these early communities. The other reason I want to mention this story is because it shows that the gospel doesn't just bridge this early divide of Jew and Gentile or the early divide of slave and free, but also rich and poor. This would have been a really big social divide. People who are moneyed, people who weren't, lived totally different lives. The gospel bridges that gap as well. So when Jesus teaches about money, he teaches about two different sides of things. He starts on the practical um, and you know, something like the, the worker is worth his keep but then he nearly always leads on to matters of the heart. So in Thessalonica, we have the practical. The hungry and poor are cared for. Paul talks in his letter to them about your labor prompted by love. Steve unpacked for us a little bit earlier in the series how out of love, people were willing to work hard to make sure they could provide for those around them. Also practically, Jesus glorified. Your faith in God has become known everywhere is what he says to them. One of the ways that their faith was known is because this community lived differently. They shared things. They took care of each other in a way that was unknown of at the time. But he also talks about the heart. And I I think we can probably imagine, perhaps, what might have been going on in Aristarchus' heart, being somebody who was wealthy amongst a community of poor believers. But actually, to pick into that a little bit more, I'd like to, to move to a different story. I'd like to move to John. Um, who I started telling you about, because I think it shows up even more clearly in his life. So John is a fellow at Lincoln College. Um, He seems to be enjoying life. He smokes a little bit. He drinks, though not to excess. He enjoys his social life. And then he has an incident that changes this. While at Oxford, this is a biographer of his, an incident changed his perspective on money. He'd just bought some pictures for his room when one of the scouts came to the door. For those of you who aren't in the Oxford system, the scout is the person who comes and cleans your room. Um, it was a cold winter day, and he noticed that she was dressed only in a thin cotton dress. He reached into his pocket to give her some money to buy a coat and found he had too little left. Immediately, the thought struck him that the Lord was not pleased with the way he'd spent that money. He asked himself, will your master say, well done, good and faithful steward? You've decorated your walls with the money which might have protected this poor woman from the cold. Where is justice? Where's mercy? And not these pictures, the blood of this poor woman. Those are his words. You can see something changing in his heart there. His attitude started to change. The previous year, he'd given away 6% of his income. He kept fairly close accounts. He'd given away 6% of his income to the poor. He came to realize that though his salary had roughly doubled 
the following year, he could still live off the same amount he'd lived off the previous year. And that gave him over 50% of his new salary to give away. What's changed here is more than his practical giving. His goals have changed. You might have picked up already this chap is John Wesley. I didn't want to throw that in too early because I want you to realize he's a real person. Yeah, and he, he started off just like we start off. Um, perhaps I wasn't in a fire when I was five, but you know, he, he's, a, he's a real person with a real story. He's not some 2D kind of poster. This is a real person who, to whom real things have happened that have changed him. The same can be true of us. Um, a church historian called Charles Edward, Wright, uh, Charles Edward White writes this about him. He says, Wesley felt that the Christian should not merely tithe, but give away all extra income once the family and creditors were taken care of. He believed that with increasing income, what should rise is not the Christian's standard of living, but their standard of giving. So <laughs> I was preparing to talk about this, and I read this, and goodness me, and I'd, I'd love to say I got this all sorted before I spoke to you about it, because then I'd be able to share out of a place of total integrity. I haven't. You know, I, I look back over my Amazon purchase history, And, and I felt convicted. Has my standard of living risen more than my standard of giving? Absolutely, it has. But there's an adventure to go on. And so, actually, perhaps this is a better way to speak to you guys, because I can, I can stand here and say, I'm in the same place as you, but I want to go on this adventure. I think there's an adventure. What would it be like if we started taking tangible, sustainable steps towards giving away more and living it up a little bit less? I have an example this is a small example, but this is one small tangible step that I took. I came up for renewal on my phone contract, and my phone's been getting a bit unreliable. It switches off when it gets to about 35% battery, which is generally just when I've tried to scan one of the codes on those bikes to get somewhere in town. And my phone dies, and I'm like, okay, I'm walking it then. Um, it's happened four times so far. Maybe the Lord's trying to tell me I should walk more. But anyway, I was due for a new renewal on my contract, and I thought, yeah, this is great. I could get my new phone. And then I thought, it still works. If I dropped down to just paying for the SIM-only package, that would save £20 a month. I could do something else with that, couldn't I? And I really felt like God spoke to me about that and said, give that money away instead. I'm not saying this to big myself up. I'm saying it because there there are all choices that we can make. Um, Maybe it's bigger than that. Maybe it's smaller than that. You know, different people have different scales of disposable income, and I understand that. But actually, I think we can all take small steps towards giving more and living less, at least living it up less, perhaps. Interestingly, Wesley says, the more we spend on non-essentials, the more we want. The more we indulge luxury, the more we want. He says, it's a bit like feeding a monster. The more you feed a monster, the more it wants to eat. But if you stop feeding it, it goes away. (laughs) And so we end up enslaved to this monster of feeding our wants, and it keeps increasing its appetite. And I, I find that. I definitely find that. So there's, there's practical takeaways. You know, let's increase our giving rather than our living. But there's also a heart thing going on. Let's increase our compassion. Let's go, let go of wanting stuff. There's something liberating about that. I've talked about Ari, I've talked about John. I want to talk about Ben now. So Ben's got this steady job in, in the factory as the warehouse manager really enjoying himself. But one day, day like just any other, he gets called into a meeting with his boss, who tells him in not so many words that his profits are unacceptably low. And then comes the bombshell. He's given his four weeks' notice. 
Well, Ben's never interviewed for a job before. He just got this job in the warehouse and he's worked his way up. His health isn't great either. He doesn't fancy his chances of finding another management position, given his reason for leaving. So what does he do? Well, in desperation, he sits down at his desk and racks his brains for ideas, and he's sort of reaching for a piece of paper to write down some thoughts on. And he, the first bit of paper that comes to his hand is an unpaid invoice from a company that's ordered 400 reams of paper. And as he stares blankly at the bill, this idea dawns on him. And he picks up the telephone. Hi there, Rob. Just been looking over your, your latest paper bill, actually. Listen, you're a good customer. You've been with us a while. I reckon I could swing you a 30% discount. He pauses. By the way, I, I've been thinking, I've been in this job too long. I'm, I might be looking to, uh, to move. You don't happen to know anyone who's looking for a logistics manager, do you? Another pause. Oh, really? Oh, that'd be really interesting. Should we talk more tomorrow? He hangs up and heads to his filing cabinet and pulls out every large unpaid invoice he can find. Suddenly, he can see a way forward. What do we think? How did he act? Good? Bad? Well, you might be surprised to know that Jesus commended him. Well, sort of, anyway. The closest I can come here to the parable that's often known as the dishonest manager or the shrewd steward, depending on which way you see it and which translation you have. Why was he commended? I used to struggle with this one so much. You're like, Jesus can't be telling this guy he's done the right thing. Well, he's commended because he has an eye to the future. He uses what's of no value to him now to secure what is of immense value to him later. Jesus said this, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Well, what are we saying here? Another story I could have told you 500 years ago is about a chap called Martin who stuck 95 rather provocative statements on the door of a castle church. And uh, they were about indulgences. And his concern was that people were being told that they could spend their money to buy salvation. 500 years and a month, I think, almost to the day Martin Luther did that. His concern was that people were told they could spend money instead of repenting. And it's wrong on so many levels. You know, and just, you know, repentance can't earn salvation anyways. How could you replace it with money? Repentance doesn't earn anything. It's a response to something God has graciously given us. But it's the wrong way around. We can't do anything for God to provoke a gracious response from him. But he has acted graciously towards us, and we respond in love. So what does it mean to use our worldly wealth to be welcomed into eternal dwellings? What does it mean? I think it takes a bit of unpicking, but he goes on and helps us a little bit later. He says, this is Luke 16, by the way, if you want to follow it, um, this is what Jesus then says afterwards. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever's dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you haven't been trustworthy in, in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? You see, Jesus does teach that in some way there will be rewards and responsibilities after this life. Honours which actually perhaps in the revelation picture end up as crowns laid at Jesus' feet. It's not like we keep them for ourselves. But there's a well done, good and faithful servant. He does talk of honour being given. And I think that how we use our money plays into that. It's not whether or not we get into eternal dwellings. We can't buy our way into salvation. I can't make that clear enough. Please don't ever hear that from me. But we can respond in a way that causes Jesus pleasure and a way that 
He then responds by saying, well done, good and faithful servant. You used what you had well. We can have a heart that is set on eternity rather than on the next thing we could buy or something we'd like to have in our house or a way we'd like to live. I think Philippians 4 supports this reading. The Philippians supported Paul's mission to Macedonia. That comes out in in his uh, letter to them. And he says, you know, it was great. You, You supplied everything I needed, even as far as Macedonia. Not that I desire your gifts, This is what he says. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. Or in another translation, I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. There's something of the fact that the Philippians have given to support Paul, which he sees as being to their credit in front of God. Not again in the sense of them earning something, but in the sense of them being in good standing with God. In the sense of God welcoming that and saying, yes, it's good. So, back to Aristarchus. He crops up again in Acts 20 and 27, as well as in Philemon and Colossians. What's he doing? Well, Paul takes this big collection for the Jerusalem church, and he goes around all of these different places that he's set up churches, collecting money to take to the poor of Jerusalem, because they're in a really poor state. You know, we, we read very early on that they sold all their stuff to provide for the poor, but they inevitably ran out of money doing so. And Then there was a famine. We read about that happening. Uh, There's a prophet who predicts it. And they're really in a bad way. And Paul takes up this collection. But that kind of thing wasn't done. You know, we we didn't have, what do they call them, chuggers on the street, like we do in Corn Market, collecting money for charities. They didn't have um, that system of, you know, yes, let's take a whip around and go and provide. So when Paul took large amounts of money from this church to take them to Jerusalem, he took people with him as well to make sure that Paul wasn't making off with the money himself. At least that's what we read into it. When you hear the list of who's with him, there's one or two people from every church he's visited who are going with him to see that the gift is delivered well. Aristarchus is one of them. He comes from Thessalonica. So he was entrusted to convey this gift to Jerusalem. Later on, though, in Philemon, we read about him being a fellow worker with Paul. That's interesting, isn't it? He's not just you know, somebody who's gone along for the journey to make sure Paul doesn't do a runner. Um, you suspect he probably trusted Paul more than that. He's, his heart has warmed to what Paul's doing. He's a fellow worker in the gospel. Actually, by the time of the letter to the Colossians, he's a fellow prisoner. He's being imprisoned with Paul. So what would Paul have taught Aristarchus about money? Well, clearly he taught him that it was right to support the poor of the Christian community. It's interesting and perhaps uncomfortable to us, I don't know. It's, it sometimes seems uncomfortable to me that actually... Almost all of the teaching that we receive on provision for the poor starts with the poor in our community. I don't know if that seems wrong. I know we we like to exist for the benefit of those who are outside our community, but actually, Paul and Jesus teach you to look to the poor within your community as well. And actually, there's more teaching on that than on provision for the wider poor. But both are important. And Paul taught about both. So did Jesus. So supporting the poor of the Christian community, he would have taught them. Giving to the poor more widely, he would have taught them. And then giving to support ministry. It's another, um, oh yeah, that he was drawn to sharing the gospel, Aristarchus would have been. Giving to ministry, here we go. Jesus says the worker's worth the wage. So when he sends out the disciples two by two, he says, look, you know, don't take stuff with you. Allow the people you visit to provide for you because you're worth it. What you're giving to them, you're worth it. But Paul, although he sees that as being 
absolutely valid and right. He says he wants there to be no possible obstacle to the sharing of the gospel. So he says, look, I, I don't want to take anything from the people that I'm visiting to share the gospel because that might be an obstacle. They might think I'm in it for the money. So I'd much rather be provided for by people who've already got it so that I can take the gospel with no obstacles at all. And so, for instance, we read about the Philippians providing for Macedonia. He saw it, as he puts it in his letter, as a partnership of giving and receiving. He gave himself generously to the, to the Philippians. And then later on, he receives from them so that he can give generously elsewhere. In 1 Timothy 5, he talks about it as the oxen treading the grain. I don't know if you... Like, this picture perhaps doesn't come naturally to us because we're not agricultural, and if we are, we don't use oxen. But the oxen would... Sorry? We we live in Oxon. Yes, thank you very much, Jez. You should be up here. Very good. Um, When the oxen were turning the the mill wheel to grind the grain, there would always be bits that fell out on the floor. Now, if you didn't want the oxen to eat it because you wanted to make it all into flour, you could put a muzzle on the ox. And the, the principle says, don't muzzle the oxen when it's treading the grain. If it's doing the work, let it share a little bit in what, you know, what overflows from that work. Paul uses the same metaphor. He says, don't muzzle the oxen. Don't, don't prevent somebody serving amongst you from benefiting a little bit from the overflow of what happens in that community. Um, at times, he even talks about it almost as a debt. This is in Romans 15, 26, again, talking about this um, collection taken for the poor of Jerusalem. And he says, look, the Jews have shared their spiritual blessings with the Gentiles they owe it to them to at least provide financially back. He, you know, he gets that the spiritual blessing that the Jews have given to the wider church is so, so much more than any financial um, giving that might happen. And so, he, yeah, he says, frankly, they owe it to them, which is an interesting turn of phrase. I want to take a step um, aside for a moment and say a word about our church and money, um, if I can. I just want to be quite frank about this, actually. I found it much easier to be frank about this once I realized that how much is given in this church makes no difference at all to my salary. So hopefully I can speak without self-interest. Um, genuinely, it doesn't, though. <laughs> but we're praying for growth. And if I'm honest, staff capacity is a real bottleneck for us at the moment. When we talk about what we could do, there's no lack of vision in this community. I've sometimes heard it said that we're a community of dreamers. I think we do stuff pretty well as well, actually. But there's, there's more vision here than we can support. And one of the ways to overcome that would be to increase staffing. Um, it is a bottleneck. From time to time, we have generous gifts. And you might remember there was a really generous gift given last year, which enabled us to employ a youth worker for a year. And it was wonderful, really good to do so. But actually, if we want to plan for strategic employment of staff to last, what we really need is just a smaller increase but of regular giving that we can count on. So, yeah, and given in a way that we know it's dependable as well. That's the other thing. I, you know, Dan mentioned that a lot of people give um, by standing order or something that's not visible here on a Sunday, but actually the accountants look at it and they go, yeah, we know we're getting that next month as well. And that's really helpful when we're trying to offer somebody a job that we know that we're still going to be able to offer them a job in six months' time. Um, so I just want to say that's, you know, that's the case. Last time I preached, I celebrated that we have a really genuine culture of community here. I want to celebrate some of the missional stuff that we've done as well. We have Alpha courses running, and we have run some. We've seen people come to faith through that. It's been really exciting. We've seen other people have their interest peaked. Um, we've been part of starting innovative forms of mission, like club mission to university students. Um, if you want to know more about that, ask Dan Kane wherever he is. 
over there. Um, but Mark Poniatowski was seminal in getting that started. Perhaps most of all, we founded a school. It's amazing. I mean, Tyndale School is fantastic. It's just wonderful. We did that you know, with the help of God, absolutely his idea, but we did it. If you believe, like I do, that as a community, what we're doing in reaching the city is worthwhile and the money is well spent, then I just wonder, could we all aspire to increase what we give? I promise you I'm not asking you to do something that I am not prepared to do myself. And I hear this as a challenge to me as well. But I wonder if as part of this, live less, give more. I wonder if some of that might be into this community as well. And I wonder if we might see a fresh sort of... um, availability to go after the visions that God has given us because we know that the obstacle isn't money anymore the obstacle isn't time anymore that would be wonderful as I say I'm not asking you to do anything that I'm not prepared to do myself and I hear this as a challenge to myself as well and my salary won't go up okay I want to finish really by moving on to some words that Jesus spoke he said where your treasure is there your heart will be also now I think I've said this before but I think you can read that in two ways, and I think both are valid. There's a reactive way. It says, where's my treasure? I suppose that tells me where my heart is. It could be a monitoring thing. Where am I investing myself? And it's, treasure doesn't just have to be money here, actually. It can be time as well, which perhaps is at least as important to us. Where have my time spent? Where's my money spent? Where am I giving of myself? That tells me where my heart is. Um, in my case, my, um, probably my biggest foible in terms of where I give myself is to gadgets, actually, and, and in time as well, actually. I used to be a computer programmer. I still dabble. I quite enjoy that. But I can't tell you the number of times where I've got to the end of an evening where I've just sat there playing around with computer programming. Most of you are zoning out and thinking, what a geek. A few of you will know the joy that it is to create something. But actually, time that could have been well spent elsewhere... Gadgets that I bought that I don't use or don't use often enough to justify. So there's a monitoring. Where is my treasure? What does that say about my heart? But there's also a proactive thing. And I think this is a gift to us. We don't just have to look at that state of affairs and say, well, that's how it is. We can also use how we give ourselves to shape our heart. And this is the really exciting bit. I think by choosing to invest our time and our money in things, just like Aristarchus who started off by investing his money and then his time in going on this long journey to Jerusalem finds himself as a fellow worker with Paul in the gospel and then a prisoner. He shaped his heart by how he chose to give himself. And I want to suggest that we can do the same. So if having monitored and seen where is my treasure, if we're not satisfied with that answer, I think we can choose to to change it. We can change our hearts by choosing to give ourselves. I found myself thinking about what my goal is in life. You've probably heard it said that um, nobody ever sat on their deathbed or lay on their deathbed and said, I wish I'd spent more time in the office. Um, There's a story on the back of Don't Waste Your Life. Is it John Ortberg, the book, I think? And it talks about a couple who um, make their millions early on and retire and go sailing around the Caribbean collecting shells. He said, how sad. What will they do on Judgment Day? See, Jesus, look at my pretty shells. I read that, and that cut me straight to the heart as well. My goal in life needs to change. I need to do a course correction. I don't think I'm way off. I don't think I'm looking at, you know, something totally off course. 
But I think there's a correction needed. I think I'm too invested in wanting to grow in things in the world. I wonder if this call to live less and give more in a way that prob probably occasionally made people look like they were joyless. I wonder if that's just something for the past. I don't think it is. Do we think we'd really be worse off if we tried to live that out radically as a community? I think we'd go through a short period of pain, like getting into a cold shower or something. But you know, you know it's good, and you know you need to do it. And then after a while, it doesn't bother you anymore, and actually you realise it was worth doing. I wonder if there's a bit of that for us here in how we live. So I want to give you a couple of practical ways I think you could go forward from here if there haven't already been enough shared. And one is that I think we find it hard to talk about money. Probably of all the subjects I have to talk about up here at the front, I find it the hardest. And that's even after going through several iterations of saying, no, I've got it sorted now. Um, so if you want to change, I suggest you start some conversations with people. If you have a personal pastor, don't give them the difficult job of saying, oh, look, can we talk about money? Go to them and say, I want to talk about money. Be prepared to be open. If you're not being pastored in that way, well, one, one solution would be get pastored, of course. That would be great. Do it. Talk to somebody in the leadership team. It's a great thing. But start a conversation with a friend. Maybe set each other a bit of a challenge. You know, how much could we manage to sustainably give away by the end of the year? Or whatever it might be. Or even maybe let's do a budget. I don't know if you hate doing budgets as much as I do. If we did a show of hands, who in this room liked doing a budget? I think I know which way. Yeah, Andy Clark and maybe three others. Okay. But do a budget. If you don't know how much you've got, you don't know how much you can give away. John Wesley knew that he was living off 28 pounds and he earned 30. And then it doubled to 60 and he was still living off 28. You know, he recorded that because he knew it. Maybe that's a challenge. So start conversations. Maybe do a budget. And the last thing is to pray. We want God to change our hearts. We want God to help us do hard things. And I think this is a hard thing for us. As a community, I think it's a hard thing for us in the society. But I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to change us. So um, I think we're going to pray now. Dan, back to you. Thanks, Al. I think what Al's done is just... I guess the question I hear is, so where, where, what's our trajectory? Where... Where are we going? Where's, what does this point to? Um, you know, our, our habits around money, whether that's how we give, how we spend, how we save, whatever it is, they're not, they're not just things that we do, but actually they're things that do things to us because we do them. Uh, so they, our generosity does something in us. Our miserliness does something to us. Our, you know, all of these things, good and bad, shape us towards some kind of trajectory that, um, you know, we want to align that. So I guess I just ask you to stand and, you know, if, if you want to say, yeah, God, that's, that's the trajectory I want to go on, which is, uh, you know, the details to be worked out. And I, I pray that God will speak to you. But if that's the trajectory you want, just, just put your hand on your wallet or, or your pocket or something and say, God, this is yours. I want to go on your way. So just stand. I'm going to pray. Uh, and we'll do this as a, an act of saying where we want to go. Father, thank you that everything we have is yours. Lord, you, you have it all and, and will have it all one day again. Father, thank you that you've given us things to steward, 
on your behalf. And Father, I pray that you help us direct our habits around money, around giving, around spending, such that they form in us a heart that is set on you and a trajectory that is pointing towards you and your kingdom. God, we we say your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in all of these areas around our finances. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, Go in peace and go with the Spirit of God who comes alongside to comfort and have a great week. And uh, until next Sunday, God bless.